0: the Americans just closed all U.S. airspace. That was it. Job done. You you can't fly into, out of, or be in the air in America.
1: You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back from wherever in the world you are today for episode 18. And thanks again for being part of the listener base. And to those of you that have emailed me telling me that you're enjoying the show, thanks heaps too. It's amazing to hear your stories And about the roles that you're working in in the helicopter industry. This episode, we'll get a chance to find out what it takes to break the record for around the world helicopter flight with British pilot Simon Oliphant Hope. Simon flew around the globe in 2004 in a MD500 in just over 17 and a half days from first takeoff to last landing. It's not only a great aviation achievement, but an amazing logistical and planning effort to pull it off successfully. So in a moment, we'll join Simon as he talks about the trip. You might remember a few episodes ago that I mentioned an Aussie listener, Aaron, was traveling in the US on his way up to Alaska. Well, Aaron actually got to meet and hang out with Lorena Knapp, who was our guest back in episode eight. So if you remember, Lorena flies an A-star for the aeromedical role in Alaska, and I've posted a photo that they sent me of the two of them in the hangar uh, on the show Facebook page over at facebook.com forward slash So next time you're on Facebook, come over and like the page. Another quick shout-out, this time to Chad Norberg in Washington, USA. Chad is a a dual-rated fixed-wing and rotary uh, private pilot, and he's currently working on on his commercial helicopter license. So great to hear from you, Chad, and best of luck with the training. Send me some photos. Chad found the show on iTunes, which I'm guessing is how most of you uh, found it as well. So just a reminder, if you haven't been to the website yet, You can download a list of the top 10 helicopter books for helicopter aircrew on the site. You can see photos of the guests and following the links that we talk about in the different episodes. So that's over at rotarywingshow.com. Okay, let's cross now to Simon Oliphant-Hope in the UK and find out about his around-the-world helicopter adventure. Look, Simon, thank you for joining us on the Rotary Wing Show today. A few bits and pieces. So, obviously, your round-the-world trip will be something we definitely want to talk about. But right. b- before we get to that, can you just talk about where you're, where in the world you're located, and I guess the company there you're currently the managing director of. You know what it is, and, and what are you doing there?
0: Certainly, um, we're based on the south coast of England at an airport called Shoreham. It's about an hour and a half south drive, drive south of London. And the business uh, that I have is called Eastern Atlantic Helicopters. And primarily, we buy and sell aircraft with a dealer for Enstrom Helicopters in the US and a dealer for MDHI, uh, what was McDonnell Douglas and Hughes Helicopters in the US. But predominantly, we buy and sell aircraft. We we do a bit of maintenance in-house. We do a bit of training, mainly on the aircraft that we sell. And we, do, uh, we, we lease a couple of our aircraft to a couple of people we know fairly well. But in reality... The, the main thrust is in aircraft acquisitions and disposals.
1: I had a quick look at the map. You could almost just draw a line directly south from, from London and where it hits the coast, that's almost where you guys are located.
0: Yep. In fact, I'm, I'm a bit nomadic. I have a house in, in near Cambridge in Essex. I, I live in London half the week and down here half the week. So, um so yeah, the Gatwick Express gets
1: an awful lot of revenue out of me. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, so you guys got a claim to fame where you got um two consecutive awards for actually supplying more um McDonald's helicopters per year than any other dis- distributor in the world.
0: We were pretty dynamic uh, with MD helicopters before before it went on it the, the world went on its go slow. Candidly, and I think most manufacturers are seeing this, there isn't a great appetite for people to buy new aircraft. They're very expensive now, and um, it's starting to change because um, people would would tend to buy used aircraft because uh, they were better value for money, and people were trying to dump them when the markets went bad and the banks all got sick, but there are very few... Left now, good value used ones, and there weren't many new ones sold over the last five years, so that's starting. was starting to look like it's going to come back in, and new aircraft are going to start to take, up, take off. This
1: is and this, <laughs> true. Uh, and this is kind of taking us off track, but is it, are things moving more to a, a leased type arrangement for, for when people are putting in new aircraft, they, they're moving to leasing? It?
0: We, we tend to deal predominantly with with wealthy companies and individuals that are using them for private use. We do sell to some police forces, some EMS forces, but in reality, most of the people, I think we've never leased a helicopter. People get finance, which you would like to call, some, some call it lease purchase, but I've not seen an aircraft lease. That's generally something a manufacturer would do, direct, rather than a dealer.
1: Okay, yeah, look, I'm getting out of my depth <laughs> as soon as we start talking about lease figures and things like that, but uh, for yourself, so Simon, what was your first contact with helicopters? how did you get into the helicopter world?
0: Uh, I was in the, the property game in the late 80s, and I decided I'd like to learn to fly a helicopter. So I uh, picked up the local Yellow Page, as we call it, over here, which is like a trade, trade, local trade journal where you can find plumbers and electricians, and looked up helicopter training, and my local airfield did it. And uh, I was here within about three hours and had signed up on a course. Learned to fly on a little Hughes 269, um, the, the four run into the Schweitzer 300, and that was it. I was hooked.
1: Fantastic, and, and you got a job straight out of the training, so you left the property game, or how'd that work?
0: The property market actually did one of these usual collapsing routines, and and uh, the the owner of a company based at Shore called S- Southern Air said, look, Simon, I really, really would would like you to come and work with me. I, I think that um, that your sort of uh, he, dynamism is what he said at the time, whether that's right or wrong. I think age has knocked a few bits of that off, but would be invaluable to our business. And it was the Enstrom dealer and had been the Hughes dealer. So I said, yeah, okay, fine. Things are a bit slow for me at the moment. So I started running Southern Air, did that for about three and a half, four years, and then decided that, that I didn't want to... Uh, 50 employees and training and wedding charters and fixed wing charters. I just wanted to sell aircraft, predominantly helicopters. So started Eastern Atlantic Helicopters.
1: Okay, so there's obviously a few things happening along the way there. So you were a CFI at one stage. So you're actually an instructor yourself.
0: I got. I have a UK PPLH, and. I did not have, whilst I I got lots and lots of experience. I think I've got about just under nine thousand hours now. Uh, I didn't have the time to to go and get a, a UK commercial licence or what would we, we'll now be called an EASA, your commercial licence. So I got a US PPL, a US CPL, then I got a US CFI, and then a US CPLIR. So. Uh, but I have let the instructors lapse. I don't have the patience. Uh, I, my two sons are both helicopter pilots now. My youngest is, is 20, He's studies his PPL, and my eldest is 21, and he's flying for British International Helicopters. He's doing squirrels, B2 and B3 squirrels, actually mainly out of Battersea in London, doing tours and stuff like that. So I realised very quickly after they asked if I could teach them to fly that I just wanted to kill them. So I thought probably best to have the students live. Why a little laps.
1: I think most actually
0: the reason for the CFI even though I'm I'm a little bit impatient and I'm not really a, the, the right person to instruct the predominant reason for getting a CFI rating was so that when I was demonstrating or selling an aircraft I could leave, legally sit in the co-pilot seat and allow the prospective purchaser to fly P1. That was the real reason for doing the CFI sure
1: and, and like, i i just uh, appreciate parents actually teaching their kids to to drive cars and then to to step that up <laughs> and teaching your kids to to fly a helicopter But i imagine <laughs> then in the sales side of things then uh, that's when you got into the ferry flights when you're flying aircraft between america and england
0: no, not really. No, I, yeah. we, we always ship our aircraft backwards and forwards, generally row-row. Uh, we fly them back from Europe, etc., but we ship them. But uh, the uh, round-the-world stuff was really, I was going to, uh, uh, MD did a, every year, used to have a big distributor meeting out at Mesa, Arizona. And one year they had Ron Bauer come and do a presentation on flying around the world and the fact he held both the eastbound and westbound world speed records in a helicopter. Uh, eastbound in a jet ranger and westbound in a Bell 430 and i was pretty captured by it and thought the guy was was very uh uh animated and um a few months afterwards i was on a on a, a flight to uh go to uh geneva to the Bizjet show out there and uh i thought i was meeting the md guys and i thought well it'd be great to fly around the world i wonder if they would give me a helicopter to do it in if i could raise some sponsorship so i arrived with very little preparation said Guys, how do you feel about doing some PR with me? And they said, "What do you want?" I said, "Like an explorer, please. I want to fly around the world." And and that's really how it started.
1: Excellent. Okay, so walk us through the process then. Like, what was your house like or work like when you were trying to plan this flight around the world? And and can you just talk to folks about the route and maybe some of the rules that go in with actually going sure. for the for the uh, for the record?
0: Well, I, I couldn't have done it without a, uh, my uh, who is now still with me twelve years on my sales director and chief pilot is a guy called Jamie Chalkley. And I, uh, I actually employed him to, to because he used to do operations at the place Southern Air, um, to, uh, how would I say, plan this with me. In fact, he did 90% of all the planning, and uh, was exceptional. I, I say it was it, the planning was fundamental to being being successful. So th- the the biggest issue is where you get fuel, and the rules are as such. You have to, you can't go up into the Arctic. You can't just go up around the North Pole and back down again, so i around the world. You have to do a minimum uh, of the length of Tropic of Cancer, or Capricorn, i.e. 20,000-odd nautical miles. The trouble is that at the place where we can go round and actually leap from island or landmass to landmass, i.e., for example, going from Canada to Greenland, that's 453 nautical miles. And that's about on the limit for, certainly in the aircraft I was in, for most aircraft, you can't go any lower down than that. Uh, in terms of the globe, because you would miss. You, you wouldn't be able to get to the next landmass. So we do it at a fairly a fairly high latitude. And that means that you don't actually need 20,000 nautical miles to go around the globe. You'll do it in about sort of 17. So we had to waste some miles, if you like, or make up some miles. So if you look at my route online, you'll see that I went all over the place in America. And, and predominantly that was because once I had left um, the UK I uh, then went to Germany um, then to Sweden and then to St. Petersburg that was the first day and then through Russia which takes about a week it's a big old place Russia and then across the Bering Straits to Nome Alaska then around Alaska um, through Alaska down south and then waste a load of miles in America to make up the minimum distance and then back up to just south of the Arctic Circle to go around across the North Atlantic via um, Greenland round Greenland Iceland, around Iceland, Faroe Islands, and back to the UK. So the the minimum distance is pretty critical. The other interesting thing is the average speed from the minute you take off at the point of departure to the minute you land at the point of arrival, which is the same as departure, obviously. So that means that um, all the time you're asleep or going to the toilet or eating a bun or refueling, all of that counts. So it it is not just the time you're in the air, it's the total time and therefore the total speed.
1: Ah gotcha, okay. And definitely I'll include the the map and the in the show notes for this episode too and when you first look at it, it's like, you know, what is what on earth is going on there in the US with the 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 trackers, as you said, it goes all over the shop to make up the miles. But I guess uh, Well
0: it's the easiest place to it's the easiest place. You know, the the you can the 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 FLs are open night and day. Um it's cheapest too in many ways. There are no landing fees out there at all. The weather's pretty good if you choose the right place to go. It, during the we were doing lots of night flying and quite a bit of IFR flying. And we pick the lower areas, the flatlands as well, Iowa, Ohio, that sort of thing. But uh, in general, it's it's a very aviation-friendly
1: environment. It would have been good PR too, I guess, for for MD helicopters actually doing the the state visits there.
0: Yeah, I, but the difficulty. I mean, in, in in honesty, you're on the ground. You take off. I'd normally take off about six in the morning from wherever I was. Um, that's uh, normally get up about four thirty try and get some coffee in you. The, the The hotel was normally shut when I got up. Then I'd get a, some sort of taxi to the aircraft. The aircraft would have been refueled the night before. Get up, pre-flight, talk to base, get airborne about six. And then I would normally fly for about four hours. My endurance was five hours to empty tanks. So I'd fly for about four hours, land. When I landed, I had to refuel the aircraft. With a bit of luck, get a sandwich and a bottle of water. Get my forms signed. You have to have uh, authoritative people sign all the forms everywhere you stop to make sure that they know you've been there and then get airborne. And we would try and do that in under 20 minutes. Our best was, was nine minutes in America, and our average was about 14 minutes. And, and that's, that's chucking some fuel in, running around. You know, you're, you're doing some, some pretty heavy work um, like when you're on the ground. And Jamie would plan everyone to be there, sat, the person to sign, the refuel, a sandwich, a bottle of water. So I've flown for four hours, and I've been on the ground for 20 minutes, hopefully out a pee. Um, and uh, then you get airborne again, and I fly for another four hours. And then we repeat the same process all over again when I landed and aim for a 14- or 16-minute turnaround. And then get airborne again and fly for another four hours and land at night. So I've done 12 hours flying. I've probably been away from from a a base for about 14 hours, including time on the ground and odds and sods. Um, Now I've got to refuel the aircraft, pre-flight it ready for the next day and get to a hotel. Um, And I would normally achieve that by about 10 o'clock at night. uh, They'd normally leave out some food because most places were pretty inhospitable grab a bit of sleep after I spoke in the base, and then do it again. And that went on for 17 days, so I was pretty wrecked at the end of it, and I had a very sore bottom.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a killer schedule. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's crazy. And, uh, okay, so that changed my perspective, because I thought you might have actually done some PR stuff along the way, but no, that was just full on. So other than the officials meeting you at the airfields, was it solo, yeah. or did you have your own crew sort of meet you from point to point as far as some kind of ground crew, or for the majority it of it? was
0: solo, uh- the only time someone was in the cockpit was uh, going through Russia, which is not a place you want to visit east of east of uh, Novosibirsk, sort of getting on towards syria and east of Siberia is not a very hospitable place at all. um It was better the second time round in two thousand and four than two thousand and one they sort of opened up a little bit of aviation, but you know they were I was flying at between um eleven and thirteen and a half thousand feet on average because they wouldn 't let us fly any lower than that uh, there's no real general aviation over there, so i was uh, flight plan like everything else out there um it was it was uh it was not the easiest place to fly quite honestly but i would i used to ha- i had to have a russian translator uh pick up in sweden to fly into russian airspace he would then communicate um and do all the air traffic uh, discussions um on my behalf And then I I left him, he left me at Nome, Alaska, when I came out the other end, because you have to have a representative um, of the uh, Russian, well, Aeroflot, actually, on board. And no one else was in the aircraft other than that. I, of course, had to, I did about 200 hours in the 17 days. So I had to have a 100-hour inspection, which we arranged to have done. My engineers flew out from the UK, and we did that um, in California, actually, a place called Chino. And they had to do that in an overnight. So that was a fairly rushed affair as well.
1: <laughs> okay. yeah i hadn't hadn't thought of that one through as well um we'll talk about the the first attempt too because that's a, a good story but in the m d five hundred what sort of cruise speed were you what sort of airspeed were you actually averaging when you were doing the flights
0: It's probably about hundred and five knots um we're very heavy most of the time you know i've got full of fuel and and most of the rudimentaries headwinds of course tailwinds sometimes headwinds sometimes about hundred and five knots is was about average I would say. I mean, my aircraft fairly slick. It it normally closes about 130, 135 knots, but a lot of it was in very hot climates, uh, which means you couldn't pull full power because you would TOT out so when the temperature would get pretty hot, so you'd have to drop off power. In Russia, um, it's so frigging cold. Uh, In Many, many times it was minus 15, minus 18 degrees. So you had to have either the anti-ice on and or the heater from time to time. So you can't pull full full power again because you're taking a load of bleed air off and you again will TOT out. So in reality, both the extremes of hot and cold mean you can't pull the normal cruise speed that we we like to pull in the UK because we can't pull full torque.
1: And choosing the 500... Was that um, mainly because of the sponsorship, or because of the relationship there with McDonald um, Douglas? Uh,
0: the Explorer was because they, they gave me the Explorer in two thousand and one to do it. I, I raised the rest of the of the funding. I mean, give you an idea, it cost me sixty thousand dollars just to get through Russia, in their costs of navigation charges, fuel charges, landing charges, uh, costs for the for the uh, translator. So it's hugely expensive in the US, uh, sorry, in Russia, to go through their airspace. In 2004, MD were not in a place they wanted to, to, to or could help me again. Uh, they had no aircraft, and I needed an aircraft that was um, single-pilot IFR, um, quite enough, probably about 45 of the hours that I flew were uh, uh, on instruments. And um, I wanted to do it in an aircraft type that had some benefit to me. Enstroms don't have uh, the ability to be IFR. They certainly don't have the crew speed or the weight that I needed in terms of taking the fuel I required. I'm not a Eurocopter guy, um, so that was that out. I, I couldn't afford to do a 109. It wouldn't give me a benefit company-wise. And I found the world's only single-pilot IFR-certified MD500 in the US and uh, managed to persuade the owner of the aircraft to sell it to me. So that, hence the 500. And then it worked extremely well. The only thing that went wrong in the entire trip was a landing light went
1: <laughs> That's amazing, okay, so let's talk about the first attempt then in in uh, two thousand and one. it
0: sounds minor, it sounds minor but but I needed it
1: <laughs> okay. well, especially yeah, doing the uh, the hours you you were doing is uh yeah oh, definitely okay, so yeah let 's talk about the first time you went around, and um, that must have been heartbreaking, so do you want to tell the story of what happened there
0: Well, I mean it was going pretty well i uh, then I landed in a place called Prevodanoia, which is east of Siberia, uh, probably about um, 400 miles west of the Bering Straits, uh, I landed up in the morning, very early, and the translator, I had a translator called Igor Tsui, and he was of, of Korean descent, but Russian, and I had him for both trips, because he was, uh, you get pretty close to somebody when you're sat with them for that amount of time, and um, he said, there's been a terrorist attack in, in America, and um, we can't fly at the moment, I said, oh, cracky, okay. But you don't really get, at that point, you wouldn't understand the gravity of terrorist attack. We used them, dare I say, it, in England, there was Northern Ireland, the troubles, you know, there was there were terrible things happened. But they're dealt with within a day or so, and, and life goes on. It suddenly became to un, 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 uh, unwind that this was a devastating um, situation. And uh, the Americans just closed all U.S. airspace. That was it. Job done. You, you can't fly into, out of, or be in the air in America. That's it. And that went on for about three or four days. Um, so
1: you were sitting in Russia at that time?
0: I was sitting in, in a very, very unwelcoming, unhomely place in east of Siberia, and it really was rank, and I really wanted to get out. Um, but then it became apparent that that uh, in Alaska, what tended to happen, all the wealthy guys from America would go up, and they'd go fishing and hunting, and, and they would uh, have these people that would... Um, effectively transport them into and out of their lodges on float planes and so or helicopters so the the hunters and fishermen would jump in these things these helicopters and airplanes and be dropped off in the middle of nowhere and be told right we'll we'll be back here next wednesday at three o'clock to pick you up but of course the aircraft ended up not coming back next wednesday because they were all grounded so then we had hunters in the middle of nowhere trying to find their way out and running out of food so the the american um uh, FAA, decided to lift the sanction of flight in Alaska. And that allowed me, after about three or four days, to get out of, Ala- uh, out of Russia into Alaska. So I managed to do that, get a flight plan, and got out. But once I was in Alaska, I wasn't allowed into the U.S. because they had an open airspace. So after about four or five days in, in, in Alaska, it became very, very apparent that, it, that it, I was wasting my time. I wasn't going to get into U.S. airspace for a reasonable period of time. And the, the, the time frame we got to the point where I wasn't going to break the record either. I'd wasted eight days on the ground. So uh, we, uh, we cut our losses and I just headed east back across Alaska um, and then went up across the North Atlantic that way. Um, back in time for Helitech as it was. And um, uh, whilst I got around the world and circumnavigated the globe, unfortunately there was no record to be broken that time. Sure.
1: How'd you go with maps? Like, how how many, how many maps did you have to carry in the cockpit at any particular one time?
0: How many, what sort of maps? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. We, I got a a box, we had a box of maps and we, you know, this is, believe it or not, it's only 10 years ago. We had the 10th anniversary this year of uh, going around the world. Um, But, but, um, GPSs just were not where we are now. We have the SkyMap, GPS, etc. But um, nowadays you, you can log, put all your maps on an iPad uh, and you're off. Well, we didn't have that. So I had a box full of maps uh, and a box full of envelopes, um, A4 envelopes, and uh, sorry, A2 envelopes, And then every day I would pull out the required date on, on the map, open the, open the envelope in, there would be my forms for the particular aircraft I was going to, and the local map to fly on. And then when they were finished, chuck them in the back.
1: All right. So the level of planning then before you went must have just been, you know, my new details in to be able to plan every single day out, know the refueling, know the maps for the day.
0: Well, it is because, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. It is. A, 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 I don't. I don't think you, anyone could appreciate the knock-on effect. I mean, the the Faroe Islands um, are closed um, on a Monday. I think it is their airports, and Greenland's Nuke Godthab airport is closed on a Sunday. And I have to get my um, 100 hour done at night. So if I miss a leg, which means that every hotel that we've booked, every transfer that we've done, every um, every leg that I need to do to get to where I'm going to be for an overnight where my engineers are waiting for a 100 hour inspection, I've got to make that up. I can't I can't just leave that because all of a sudden everything doesn't work and impacts all of the, the whole the rest of the trip. So, yes, it is. It is an incredibly complex formula to work out where you're going to be on a particular day to get a certain task done. And we were very lucky to get that weather, of course, is another issue. I mean, we're very, very fortunate. I only lost one day and that was due to a technical issue rather than weather. But uh, I suppose it was weather related because it was a headwind that uh, I couldn't get to where I needed to go. I had to return. But in general terms, yes, planning is, is a huge part of it.
1: Did you build in weather days or, or catch-up times where you don't, fly, you, you know, you don't plan to fly a couple of hours that day to, to have that flexibility in the schedule?
0: No, we didn't actually. We just went balls out and
1: <laughs> planned to do it and thought we'd work it out if it went wrong and uh, thankfully it
0: didn't. And
1: what, what sort of comms did you have with the, the crew back at home? Like, you know, the support crew who were going to be doing, you know, changing the, the accommodation details and things like that. So how are you keeping in contact what- with those folks?
0: The support crew was one his name was Jamie and he lived in the in my hangar facility um at Shoreham Airport he basically moved in for the uh, for the t- for the 17 days and uh, I had a sat phone um which I could use from the aircraft um first time around I only had a text ability like an email from the aircraft and then on the ground I could use a, a handheld sat phone what well, not a handheld, a um a sat phone that was linked to the aircraft but the second time around I actually had in the aircraft a, a mobile sat phone which I could use for my headset so there was communication the whole time.
1: Oh, I've got a hand to you that's a, a ballsy a ballsy effort to try and uh, do that so that's awesome. Now there's a really good story about uh, Ron Bowers so he was a guy who originally had the the, the record and you caught up yep. with him in the US on your way through?
0: Yeah, they, 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 these Americans drive huge distances. He He, he drove Eight and a half hours, which to me in England, that's, you know, that's just not eight and a half hours, eight and a half hours to come and have breakfast with me one day in uh, in Texas. And that was great to see him. And he brought me a, an orthopedic cushion, actually, which he'd used to go around the world because he knew my, my bum would be aching. I mean, you spent 12 hours, I mean, a 500 cockpit's about the size... Well, it's tiny, as you probably know. It's it's tiny. You spend 12 hours a day sat in your ass. Every, I mean, I, would, I I had every. I did every position. I was on my knees on the co-pilot side while the autopilot was. I've done everything in in a five-run in terms of sitting positions. And he very kindly bought me an orthopaedic. Um, what would you say, cushion? And I used that for the rest of the journey. But uh, he is a true gentleman. He really is a true gentleman. A very fine man.
1: And he has a sticker. He has the 94 sticker. Is that right? Yeah, I,
0: I I he used to put. I got some stickers made up so I could slap them on various airports in Russia and around the world. And he there was a, a and I can't remember. I think it was a Markova. I went up to the control tower in Russia, and there was a sticker, a ninety four sticker with him going around the world. So a great pleasure in slapping my sticker underneath his. I didn't put it over the top. I put it underneath. But then one day I came out to refuel my aircraft um, as I was going for the Arctic, and I, I had stickers all over my aircraft um, sponsors. And I suddenly noticed that there was an additional sticker, and, and uh, Ron's son, Shannon Bauer, who's another pilot, a uh, good pilot, and, and a friend to us, had uh, surreptitiously stuck another 1994 sticker on my aircraft.
1: <laughs> nice. Cheeky bastard. Absolutely. And where's that aircraft now? Have you still got that one, or have you sold that aircraft?
0: Yeah, yep. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. My, both my sons have learned to fly in it, and I use it daily. I say daily, I use it uh, almost every day and um, it's a great workhorse and, and we use it all the time. It's a great aircraft. Five hundreds really are uh, a fantastic aircraft.
1: Oh, look, that's an amazing story. If, if you did it again now, is there any parts of the plan you would sort of change in hindsight?
0: I wanted to go pole to pole and I, I did think about it and did some initial planning. If I'm honest, business is too important at the moment and there's all kinds of bits going on in the UK and that was something I did and I probably, I probably got past that desire to go and risk life and limb again because you really have to take your brain out when you do these things my eldest son is very keen to uh, to try and get the westbound record and you never know in years to come when he's got enough money and enough experience he may try it but uh, i think I'll, i've 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 hung up my cyclic
1: so to speak in terms of world records currently yeah, it's definitely it's a huge, huge project. Yeah, I can't, you know, hats off. It's an amazing story to be able to tell that you've done it. Going westbound, is there a, a is there different aspects that you need to sort of take into account?
0: Mainly headwind. I mean, you know, generally the winds are eastbound. Um, I don't really think specifically that there are, other than of course it makes range an issue going over the North Atlantic, but. Uh, Maybe we'll find some more room for some more fuel if it ever happens because um, avionics can get lighter and lighter now with the generation of iPads and flat screens, so maybe we'll have some more useful load next time. But um, you never know, he might make himself a fortune in going some wonderful other grandiose aircraft we haven't even heard of. Maybe there's a ski X2, that'd be nice.
1: Yeah, it'd be different. I remember, I've heard Dick Smith talk. He's an Australian guy who did Around yep. the World early on. And yep. I think he actually had to land on a ship at some stage. He, that was his fuel stop. He He'd organised a, a ship.
0: He, he he. Uh, in fact, did, did he do that? Certainly Ross Perot Jr. did. I met Ross Perot Jr. Um, and he got a business in London, and he had the world uh, speed record going around in a long ranger. But uh, he, he had to land on a ship. But uh, he had the... The 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 good fortune to be the son of a billionaire, uh, which I'm not, um, but um, that that really was at the time when Russia was closed. There was no ability to go through Russia. You know, going eastbound there was a bit awkward. You know, with all the stands, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan being a bit dodgy. Most of Africa, they want to chop your head off. Um, the Sudan, Somalia, Eritrea, uh, and then of course you've got Iraq, Egypt, Syria. So you really only got one shot, and that really is to go through. Uh, Russia and and I say if that was closed off, it um, was closed off until about say about um, twelve fourteen years ago. So probably just opened at the right time for for Ron and myself to
1: have a go. All right, and so look, I know you've got other calls there waiting. So I'll keep it pretty quick. But uh, I wanted to ask you about the uh, the James Bond film. So you did um, some film flying there, and you were the Pierce Brosnan. Double. Yeah,
0: we do a bit of that. It's a bit of fun, really. We don't, it's not, not for any revenue basis, but uh, Jamie enjoys it, I enjoy it, and you get to meet some very interesting people. Jamie's done a few of the films. He's recently done Red 2, flying Augusta 109 around London. We've done you know, a couple of James Bond films, Agent Cody Banks, and uh, we're doing some more projects at the moment. So just a bit of fun, really. I mean, it's quite serious flying, and it's different flying, but uh, it, it changes your aspect and just makes things a little more interesting.
1: Definitely, yeah, and uh, as we talked about Dennis Kenyon before, and his stories about doing Black Hawk Down uh, in his interview were <laughs> pretty interesting too. So he had a ball doing that.
0: Uh, yeah, he's a he's a he's a good guy, and uh, great respect for Dennis.
1: Just to close up, then, can you, any top tips for for young sort of pilots who are going through now and and trying to get their first couple of jobs under their belt and, and build up their careers? You know, all the stuff you've gone through and you've seen. Have you got any advice for? folks who are just starting out in, in a career in, in helicopters? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, I, I guess
0: uh, that the, most of the people I think that have been successful started by literally washing the aircraft and then helping it on operations. And you know, it's, it's unusual, and you're very lucky if you, if you just get in, get a license, and then go out there and get a job because what everyone wants is experience. And you can't get experience without getting a job, so it is a catch-22. Um, but um, if you can find some use in an aviation country where you're adding some benefit. Maybe taking an hour here and an hour there to reposition an aircraft or to do maintenance flights. That's probably the way that most people could actually create a career. It's not easy, but uh, unless you're the son of someone who's who's actually in the business, and my son's just very lucky. I have to tell them that they'll have to listen to this.
1: Yeah, definitely, and uh, maybe I can get them on one day. They they can tell their side of things and uh, and talk about and talk about dad. Uh... Only
0: if you like expletives.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I do you want to just give your uh, your company website as a plug there, so folks can come and find out a little bit more about um, what you're doing on the, on the business side? And as i well, a few, a few photos Atlantic there. Eastern Atlantic Helicopters.
0: Eastern Atlantic Helicopters is is the name of the company. New website going up shortly. If you want to buy an aircraft, please, we'd love to be able to help
1: you. Brilliant! All right, thank you so much for your time, Simon. That's a uh, you know, it's a fantastic story, and uh, again, congratulations uh, on on that, and uh, and well done. Lovely. Thanks a lot. Nice to meet. Cheers. Look, I hope you enjoyed that. Simon is a super busy guy. And it took us a few goes at trying to work out a time uh, across time zones that actually worked for us. So I'm really grateful for him for taking the time out to, to talk to us about uh, his around-the-world record uh, flight and all the background that went to it. It's a cracker of a tale and a huge adventure to do with such a, you know, a small support crew uh, that he had. Uh, you can only imagine the amount of planning required to pull that off. You know, this, this was 10 years ago and even before things like smartphones and iPads were around. You can see the map for Simon's flight path at easternatlantic.co.uk or on the show notes for this episode, episode 18 at rotarywingshow.com. This episode is sponsored by trainmorepilots.com. So a quick marketing tip for you today is to schedule or block out some time in your calendar every week to work on your company marketing. We've all heard the idea of working on your business and not just working in your business. And if you're being reactive and responding to events that come at you during the week, then you're probably not getting to the things that are important but perhaps not urgent, like your marketing strategy that can get crowded out easily and you just don't get back to it. So make a start today by blocking out two hours on a Tuesday morning as a a reoccurring appointment for yourself to review and work on your marketing so you're getting ahead every week towards your business goals. If you haven't already, then download the free resources for flight school marketing at trainmorepilots.com to get a head start. Hey, I'm still waiting on a brave soul to leave me a voicemail on the website that I can play on the show. So if that's you, then look for the voice recording widget on the right-hand side of the website, and I'll edit that into a future episode. This will be the last episode I'll get out for 2014. So if you are listening around this time that this episode goes live and is published, I just want to wish you a, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and a safe time that you can get a chance to catch up with your family and your friends if you're not currently away on tour or on deployments. I just want to say how grateful I am uh, that you are listening to these shows and that I I really, really hope that you are getting as much from them as I am and you're learning more about this awesome industry uh, that we get to operate in. So thank you so much for that. No additional updates as yet on World Helicopter Day for 2015. I'm still working on a date and some industry partners for that, So now it's just a matter of uh, watch this space. It's definitely something that I'm really excited about though and I'm hoping you can be part of it too. So I've been your host, Mick Cullen. This was episode 18 of the Rotary Wing Show. Fly safe and I'll talk to you in 2015.